Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. So, Kirk, this has been an episode that I think has been long in the works. I think we've been building to this since the very beginning, even if we didn't really know it. It's very possible. It's very possible. Regular listeners will know that we've mentioned this in the past. It comes up frequently. And now it's a reality. So I think it's time. It's time for us to do the Leica episode. I think it's time. It is. Now, All right. we, we don't do a podcast about gear. So this isn't, <laughs> this isn't really going to be a gear episode. It's going to be beyond gear. Well, How about that? okay, let's, let's, let's stop for a second. Because my, my impression of that, my, my definition of that has always been, we're not... We don't focus on gear. We don't focus on, oh my gosh, here's the latest lens, and what do you think of this lens and what it can do? And that that oftentimes seems very limiting. But yeah. I think I think in terms of camera, yes, technically we're we're talking about a camera and its capabilities. But clearly, just you know, from what we've talked about before regarding this, things you've told me about using this camera, obviously this goes into much more. It goes into resolution it goes into you know the the quality of the image that's captured how you shoot how you process how you process exactly and so i'm gonna set aside our our we're not a gear podcast because this still applies because there's so much that gets wrapped up into your decision to buy a leica finally and use a leica and how it's changed you. How's, how's this experience changed you, Kirk, on a fundamental deep level? <laughs> well, I can now self-identify as a Leica photographer. No. Oh, no, no. You're going in the wrong direction already. <laughs> no. I'm exaggerating a little bit. So let me explain the camera that I got. It's the Leica yes. Q2 monochrome. In some ways, it wouldn't have been my first choice for the simple reason that it's a camera with a fixed lens. It's got a 28 millimeter lens which for me is a kind of wide lens. If I had unlimited financing, I would have bought the Leica M10 monochrome with a 50 millimeter lens because that's the lens I'm comfortable with. But I'll explain why a little bit later about how the lens works and how the camera works. It, it turned out that this was, here's the thing. It's a fixed lens camera, so I can't have any gear lust for buying any other lenses. And that's a positive thing. Okay. I like the idea of it being all in one. In the sense that the lens is designed for this camera, and the camera is designed for this lens. Now, there's been a Leica Q, a Leica Q2, both in color, and the Q2 monochrome is like a second monochrome camera after three different Leica M monochrome cameras. So just to very quickly go through, a lot of people are thinking, well, why would you buy a camera that only shoots in black and white? You can just convert, you can just convert your color photos. That's definitely one of our questions. So... I don't want to go into too much detail, but I saw an interesting explanation. We talked about sensors uh, in a previous episode. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the light comes into a sensor. There are different filters for the different colors, red, blue, green. And what happens is, let's say you take a set of four pixels, and these pixels don't all get the same colors, but the camera's sensor's software is interpolating them to figure out which colors they are, which means that it's kind of blurring the photo. 
Wonderful. So, That's what I always look for in a very expensive camera. <laughs> well, it's true when you think about it. And so this camera has a 47.3 megapixel sensor, which is an interesting size. And I believe it's limited to that size because the lens itself is taking more... How can I say this? It's, it's a 28 millimeter lens, but it's actually slightly wider. But when you get photos out of it, they have a bit of a crop. In other words, it would be a 48 megapixel sensor, but it's cropping to eliminate the bit of distortion that would be on the edge of the lens. Okay. Now, is this a, a full frame sized sensor in terms of, uh, of the size of the actual sensor? Yeah, it's a full frame size sensor. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So... If you take, let's take our 24 megapixel Fujifilm cameras, right? Okay. We look at that and we think that's 24 megapixels, right? But it's really probably about the resolution after it's gone through these color filters and demosaicing and aliasing and whatever they call it. It's probably really only about 16 megapixels. And if you think of it like that, this 47 megapixel camera is more like a 64 megapixel camera. It's more like a medium format camera in terms of its final resolution, because you're not losing anything. It was interesting for me to become aware of this. The sensor is pure. It detects luminosity, nothing else. Each pixel detects luminosity. No pixels are calculated based on neighboring pixels to come up with the final resolution. What this means is that the amount of information in these photos is so much more than what you get. You don't have to sharpen anti-alias smooth noise reduction. Well, if you high ISO use noise reduction. Sure. But the difference in the resolution, we're going to put a few um, samples in the show notes. In fact, there's one in particular. I'm going to show you a picture I took of some chickens in a coop. And I'll put three different versions. One, not quite the entire frame. Another one where I've cropped down. Another one where I've cropped down even more. And you'll see in the one where I've cropped down the most, it still looks, the, the resolution is still incredibly sharp. Yeah. Now, th this is something that's come up before. Um, I think I, I mentioned this in an earlier episode uh, in the context of my, my Fuji X-T3, which uh, it, you know has a 24, 24 or 26, I can't remember, 20-something megapixel uh, resolution because my previous X-T1 had a 12 or 16 megapixel. And there are lots of arguments for saying, well, resolution doesn't really matter because what really matters is uh, color and composition and all of these things that we've talked about. But there are times when resolution does matter. And I think in general, you can say, yes, my 24 megapixel camera is perfectly adequate for you know, most of the shooting I do. Nearly everything, I'm not looking at it and saying, oh man, I wish I had more resolution. But there are definitely times when more resolution is good. When I was on a, a photo excursion the last couple of weeks, there were times when my friend Mason, he has a full frame 60-some megapixel Sony camera. And for landscape work, there was an obvious difference in how much resolution that could pick up uh, it also had, you know, better dynamic range, et cetera. And so doing that, that comparison, that direct comparison, my shot and his shot, his were better in some of those, those respects. Well, they weren't better, but they had more detail. Well, they were better for that type of shot, right. I think. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think it's also important to know that you can crop. Now, one of the interesting features on this is there's a button on the back of the camera, which by default displays crop lines. Now, I can't show this on an audio podcast, but I'm going to show Jeff what this looks like here so you can see. Now, I've assigned this button to the top here. So this is the 28 millimeter version of it. I'll, I'll find a link in the show notes that shows that I think there's a video on YouTube. If I press okay. the button here, this is what a 35 millimeter crop would be. If I press it again, that's a 50 millimeter crop. And if I press it again, that's a 70 millimeter crop. So what you're seeing is white lines in the viewfinder or on the LCD that are showing you roughly what it would look like if it was cropped to be like a 35 millimeter lens. Now, of course, the lens is not just the crop. It's the, it's the what would you call it, the angle of view that distorts and all that. So right. you're, you're not going to crop to 50 millimeters and it's not going to look exactly like a 50 millimeter. It's going to still have the extended depth of field of a 28 millimeter. But you can compose like that. If you bring the DNG and or JPEG files into certain apps, you'll see the crop lines. Oh. And it'll automatically crop. I think in Lightroom, it'll automatically crop to the way you've done it. And you can uncrop if you want, if you go to the whatever crop function and, and go to the original size. So originally, I was thinking, well, this is going to be really great if I want to think like I'm shooting 50 millimeters. But it actually turned out that I don't. I just get where I can, and I just know that when I get home, I can crop half of the image and not have a problem. Okay, so this, is, this seems really interesting and kind of strange to me uh, because, of course, like the first thing that my mind thinks is, you know, why, why mess with all the little cropping angles when you can just move yourself to a better composition? But this, this almost sounds like, like a, a, a fake zoom kind of it is a fake digital zoom but they're not calling it that they're calling it a digital crop sure you you can't always move to the right position you may be next to a river right or on the edge of a cliff or something right and it's actually quite interesting to think that okay i want to crop for this because remember a wide angle lens think of something think of a sphere or think of an arc. Mm -hmm. Wide-angle lens is going to have more distortion on the sides and in the center. Right. So if you do want to crop for, let's say, that 50 millimeter, which is about half the size of, of the, the viewfinder, it makes more sense to get that in the center to avoid any distortion outside. Right. But again, you can always just crop anywhere like you can with anything else. The, 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 the importance of having 47 megapixels of nothing but luminance means that you can crop down to, if you crop to 35 millimeter, it's a 30 megapixel. If you crop to 50 millimeter, it's 15. If you crop to 75, it's six and a half megapixel. Trust me, at six and a half megapixel, this camera is sharper than an iPhone, which has double wow. resolution. Okay. This really intrigues me, um, not so much on, on the, the technical aspects, but how you're thinking about your shots as you're composing. Um, and, and so, like, I, I'm kind of curious. Is this something that the camera is capable of, but you're not really using very much? Or are, are you actively shooting thinking, oh, you know, this composition in front of me, I know will work better in the 50 millimeter uh, box or the 70 millimeter box compared to just just shooting and maybe I'll, I'll crop later. Like, I'm really curious about the mindset behind it as you're shooting. I, I've been doing it both ways because sometimes you do want to see how something's going to fit. Mm -hmm. But other times, you know, if you know you have so much room to crop afterwards, you can just shoot and crop. Remember, if I'm doing this at the 50 millimeter 
crop, that's a 15 megapixel photo, which mm -hmm. is probably the resolution that I'm getting from my Fujifilm XE4, which is 24. When you take out that difference from the interpolation, demosaicing, etc. Yeah. So it's at least as sharp as what I'm getting from a 24 megapixel. Okay. It, it's a totally different way of thinking. In fact, in some ways, it's made me think more like I'm shooting film. Ah. I'm not worrying about all these things anymore. I'm not worried about what's the white balance. Great. Don't have to worry about that. Saturation. You know, nothing like that. What I am doing, though, and I'll hold this up, you can see that this has an orange filter on it. Because when you shoot black and white film, you can use filters. Uh, the most common are orange, red, and yellow. They increase the contrast. And it works the same here that using an orange filter is the best to get a medium contrast. A red filter will make the skies really dark. An orange filter makes them in between light and dark, for example. Okay. And, and, and just to clarify, this is a filter that you've added, or is this it's how the filter the camera I've comes? added. Yeah, okay, I've yeah. added this. I've bought a few filters. Okay. Actual, actual glass filters glass that you filters. put on the lens. Yeah. Yes, that go on the lens. And, and when I shot film back in the day, black and white film, I would use filters sometimes as well. Mm -hmm. It's a standard technique in black and white. Yeah. So with this camera, I'm kind of thinking that this is more like film, that I'm shooting with a different intention, that I'm not, I'm not thinking straight out of camera. That's definitely right out. In fact, one of the things to remember about these files is the JPEGs aren't great. Huh. You, if you could tweak the contrast and the shadows and highlights to make the JPEGs more or less what you want. But what I find is the files are pretty flat. That would be fair to say. Okay. And the first thing I do, we'll talk about software in a minute because I've been using new software as well. Yeah. The first thing I do is I apply auto levels to increase the contrast. And in most cases, the auto is pretty good and I'll tweak it a little bit. Not having color changes so much. Yeah. Well, and this I find particularly interesting because for the most part, I mean, I think most of the time that I've known you, you've been very much a, uh, you know, try to get it right in camera all the time, which, you know, as we've said, that's sort of always the ultimate goal. Uh, but there are some times when you're in a situation where you know I can shoot this darker and then recover uh, shadows in, the, in, in editing, et cetera. But your position has always been as much as possible, get it right in camera, and then you just work with the JPEGs and then maybe go back to the RAWs if you need to. And so now you're telling me your brain has flipped and you're envisioning what it's going to look like and, and, and what it's going to need because the output is a little bit flatter and not as... Uh, dynamic as it needs processing no matter what okay okay now with the with the q2 normal in color the the jpegs come out of the camera quite good i've seen a lot of them they're very good okay but with monochrome i think there's two things going on i'm a big fan of fujifilm's acros film simulation i like that yeah. contrast and what i'm trying to do with this camera is to get a similar kind of contrast with black blacks and white whites right and it's not just it's not the way the camera is made by default, right? The JPEGs it makes, as I said, you can make the settings so the JPEGs are all more contrast or whatever. I'm going to show you a photo that we're going to put in the show notes. One of the first places I went after I got this camera was to a cemetery just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon. I thought this would be a good place to walk around, not many people, see interesting things. And so here's a photo I took of a statue looking out, and you can see some gravestones behind. 
when I saw this, I thought, oh, okay, there's bright sun on this. This is really interesting. And I know the the, the background is going to be dark because the bright sun is going to be, you know, the statue is going to be so bright. Yeah. And what I developed, even just after this first day of working with these photos, is this kind of imagery that's really high contrast that looks to me like film, mm-hmm. actually. If you look at the darks and the lights on the statue, then you look at the darks in the background. That's the look that I remember from shooting, you know, Kodak Tri-X Pan. Right. Now, this image that, that I'm looking at now, again, going to be in the show notes, is this out of the camera or is... No, no, this is processed. Okay. Okay, so the second photo we're going to look at is a house in my village, a pretty boring house built in the 15th century with a thatched roof and all funny angles. And again, I, I wanted to get contrast. I wanted to get the black of the, the beams that are painted and the white of the whitewashed part of the house. And the contrast that comes out here, the windows, you can see the window panes looking in there, black, 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 and the house is white. And I really like this look, this kind of high contrast look. Now, again, this is, you know, obviously not straight out of camera. I'm not just doing the levels and the contrast. (laughs) Um, I've adopted Capture One. After hanging out on a Leica forum for people who use this camera, it seemed like this was the best um, software for this type of file. I am using gradients and dodging and burning and all sorts of things. And again, I'm thinking of film. I'm thinking of this as a digital darkroom now of painting with light. You know, I've got like multiple layers going on. This is, this is not how I used to shoot photos in the past, right? Yeah. Um, but You are what blowing I'm, my mind right you, now. <laughs> what, what I'm discovering here is the the amazing flexibility of these files to be like files that you work with in a darkroom, like exposing files. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to pull another photo in here. It's actually kind of boring. So this is a photo a couple hundred yards from my house, looking over a wheat field. You can see a spinny of trees to the left. You can see the clouds kind of gray and stormy up above. And, and what I like about this photo is you've got so many shades of gray going in. So you're seeing, you're not seeing the contrast of the house, the black and the white. You're seeing the shades of gray in the sky. You're seeing the the detail of the wheat. I think there's about five layers in this photo. One to darken the foreground, a couple for the sky, dodging and burning to get everything in. And it's like, there's so much you can do with the detail in these files that it's it's making me, you know, approach these so differently. Yeah. So when you're shooting now, are you thinking about how you will process it? No. I mean... No, I'm not. I'm just looking to capture something interesting. Let's do one more. I don't want to have too many photos in in the show notes, but here's one. We were out in some little village, and here's uh, I came across a church. I was very intrigued by the angles at a particular position, looking up at the steeple of the church. Mm. And again, I, I don't know if you can see how much detail there is here. If you pull this into an app and you zoom it to 100%, um, you'll see. But again, there's a lot of stuff going on here with with gradients to to get the roof right, to get the sky right. One thing about this camera is you've got to underexpose, otherwise the highlights get blown out. So that means that no matter what, when you bring the files into an app, you have work to do. I have that little thing that flashes in the viewfinder when the highlights are blown. Mm -hmm. You know, most cameras have that. Um, So I make sure to underexpose by, I don't know, two-thirds of a stop, one stop most of the time. Mm -hmm. But it's so easy to just bring up the exposure in post-production with files like this. You're not really losing anything. Th- this particular photo right here, it was the original was very dark. 
And I did a lot to bring it up, like selectively, to bring up the light in, in different ways. Jeff asked me to show a photo with a before and after. So what I did is I've got two examples of what it is. One is a screenshot of Capture One, and it's showing this, the, the, you know, you have that little slider you can drag before and after. And you can see on the left is the before and the right is the after. And then you'll see the, the final photo as it is. This is Titus, my cat. You can see the difference in the, the detail. I, I want to say sharpness, but I don't use sharpness. It's the fact that you see all the little hairs. In the before, you can see that it's a little bit muddier. It's a little bit darker, particularly on the side of the face. It's kind of hard to really show a lot of the subtlety of, of what you do with this. I mean, dodging and burning can be very subtle. So here in this particular one with Titus, I used a radial gradient on each of his eyes to bring them out just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I dodged on the top to darken it. I used, I think, a gradient on the left as well because of the... It, it's it's turned into a an enigma. What can I do with these tools that I have ah. now that I know how to use these tools? And knowing that I have the headroom with the detail here, that if you think about it, you take your 24 megapixels and every time you make a change to it, it's moving all those pixels around and, and they're... It's not like taking a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, but over time, the more you do, the more resolution you're using. With this, it's like you've just got plenty of room. You can do anything you want. I think one of the things that I I love about this, and <laughs> this is going to sound strange. I, I sound like a proud father, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is is having this camera, it seems like it's it's really opened up a lot of possibilities for you. And you're you're clearly shooting more, which is great. So I have I have two questions. One, have you? Well, you have a brand new camera, so maybe this isn't the case. But have you picked up your your color, your your uh, Fuji XE4, and is it changing how you're shooting with that, or do you sort of have the the Leica photo mindset versus the the Fuji photo mindset? I think it's now two different mindsets. The one is that I'm doing something that requires work and I'm aware that it requires work. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the Fujifilm, which I haven't taken out a lot lately, but I have been using it for some product photos for reviews. Sure. So I have been using it a fair amount. With that, I'm just so used to what I can do with it and the way that I work with it that I know what I want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas with this, part of it is that it's new and I'm discovering it. I'm discovering new software. But it's also the, the realization of all the possibilities that are are in these files. I mean, it, it's hard to express how much detail you can get in this sort of file without seeing them. It, it's twice as much as what you get in the Fujifilm cameras, yet it's even more because there's no color, if that makes sense. I know it's hard to explain. No, no, no. That, that, that does make sense. And, and uh, we will do our best to show some examples uh, in the show notes, and uh, if you're using an app that shows images as you're listening, uh, such as Overcast, we'll we'll throw some of those in there too. Um, but my other question is: you mentioned that that you've adopted Capture One for these. Yeah. Did you try these with with other software, or did you just jump into Capture One because that's the one that was recommended, and that's one that that you feel comfortable using? 
Well, I tried with Apple Photos first, but it's clearly too limited for what you can do with files like this and yeah. for what you need to do with files like this. I didn't want to go the route of the Adobe Industrial Complex. Right. However, Capture One is even more expensive than Lightroom mm -hmm. uh, and offers less. So you don't get, a, you know, Lightroom, Photoshop, cloud storage and all that. What I like about Capture One is that every adjustment you do is a layer. So you can adjust a layer, you can uncheck it, you can recheck it, you can delete it. Unlike Lightroom, if I'm not mistaken, where you do an adjustment, it's there, you do another one, it's there. You you can either undo them, but you can't selectively turn them off, right? Um, here and there. Actually, the, the, the next version of Lightroom, which uh, they, they've previewed this feature um, that's going to be coming out, I think, at the end of October, has a more advanced masking system that sort of works like layers. It's it's not layers. Uh, you know, okay. in, in the Adobe world, if you want layers, it's you Photoshop. move the image over to Photoshop. Yeah. Um, Capture One has kind of merged a lot of that together. But also with Lightroom, you have to actually do the, quote, development first, right? And then you move into the edits. No, no, that's that's with Photoshop. So so Lightroom okay. just, just does the demosaicing de right away. Photoshop, okay. you have to do the... Because yeah. we've talked about that with Affinity Photo, which really annoys me. Totally annoying. Yes. Yeah. The other part of my question regarding software, and I believe we mentioned this when you first got this camera, is just for some reason, Capture One feels comfortable to you. It does, now, yeah. I've been using Lightroom for a long time. Lightroom feels comfortable to me, and I've used Capture One, but I feel like I need to you know, rewire my brain a little bit to, to get into it. And for some reason, it doesn't have that same comfort level. And so it's, I find it's interesting that that you've you've jumped into a very advanced tool and it's comfortable, which I think is really important and people overlook. Yeah, I think so. A, a lot of it looks like Apple Photos, right? There, there are a bunch of tabs in the toolbar. So I don't like the way it manages the library. That's a bit of an annoyance. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a bunch of tabs in the toolbar and the one that, where you do most of the exposure things looks just like Apple Photos. You've got your exposure, you've got your um, levels and curves and vignetting and all that. And so that's relatively close to what I'm used to. There's another tab that does things like sharpening and noise reduction and film grain, and I don't really look at that. So I'm really only using like one or two of the tabs when I'm working with it. I'm not using anything in color, obviously, um, white balance, color editing, etc. Mm -hmm. So I'm not using a lot of the tools, and yet I can set up the workspace so it doesn't get annoying. There's one thing that I really like, and I'm assuming that Lightroom does this, but if I'm if I've been working on a photo and I think, well, what if I did it this way? In photos, I would duplicate the photo. And here I just right click on a photo and I choose clone variant. Yeah. And I can use the same photo with different things on it. And I find that really useful. Yeah. The Lightroom has a, a versions feature that, that's right. like that, which is great because sometimes you want to try something different and not have to, to undo it all. And, and all of these are non-destructive too. So. Or not have to copy it because these DNG files are 85 megabytes. Right. So they take right. up a lot of disk space. Yeah. Now, it's worth noting that I'm shooting DNG only. I don't need JPEGs for anything. And since I mm -hmm. know I'm going to process them, I'd rather just have the one file instead of two to import. My import process is a little bit different. So one of the main reasons we talked about the way I import files into a folder then bring them into the Photos app. And part of that has to do with using the cloud. I don't want to put all sorts of stuff in the cloud that I'm not going to be using. So here... What I'm doing is I'm importing everything into Capture One. I decide what to keep. I put the rest in the Capture One trash. When I process them, if I think they're good enough, 
Then I export them and put them in my photos library. Okay. That's my final thing. It's in the cloud. I can get access on other devices. So Capture One is the processing tool, but it's not really for managing my library. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So as we wrap up, uh, a couple of things. One, how expensive is this camera? Because I think that's that's worth mentioning. And how much of, of the Leica-ness comes into this? Because the thing that's always sort of mystified me about Leica cameras has been like some people just buy Leica because it's a Leica. And you say, well, what about the camera? Well, it's a Leica, right? And so like it, it has that, that, that mystique around it. Um, I think they're, they're probably dramatically overpriced compared to other cameras that can do similar things. But from what we've talked about today, I mean, I haven't touched on any of that because I wanted to get into the the how it's making you think as a photographer and edit your photos as a photographer. But it's worth mentioning, this is like a $6,000 camera? A little bit 4, less, 000? yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, with I think in the U.S. it's on sale and 5,500, yeah, 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 yeah. You can configure a new 16-inch um, MacBook Pro for a little bit more than the cost <laughs> of this. It, it's worth noting that the Leica Q2 monochrome does not have the Leica logo on the front, the big red dot which if you're walking around with it, marks you as, you know, someone who's got an expensive camera. And I kind of like that. Yeah. It's just got a very subtle Leica name on the top plate. Okay. I, I, part of the price of Leica cameras is that they can sell it, that the market's willing to pay it. But, sure. but don't underestimate the quality of the lens. Mm. I mean, this is a lens, I believe, that it, they, they sell a 28-millimeter lens. It's not exactly the same, but I think... In pounds, it sells for like 3,500 pounds just for the lens. So the camera is about 5,000 pounds. And that's if you bought the lens. Again, this is a lens designed specifically for this camera, but the similar 28 millimeter um, sells for, you know, a lot of money. This is an F1.8. 7 lens. So it's a very fast lens. Nice. And and interestingly, since it's such a wide angle lens, I'm often shooting at F2.8 or F4 and getting all the depth of field in wide angle. So you can really shoot wide open with this. Mm. Um, I haven't tried a lot of high ISO shooting, but I've seen a lot of stuff on the internet showing how good it is at high ISO. It's it's an extraordinary lens. It's it's a large lens. Oh, I forgot to say, it's got a little thing. Do you see? I'm showing Jeff. Do you see on the top of the lens, there's a little thing that says macro. Yes. So I turn that little wheel, and all of a sudden it can focus to, I think, 15 or 17 centimeters. Okay. Which is pretty short for a lens like this. Now, as we discussed with the iPhone 13, this is not really macro. It's close up. It's faux macro. But Mm -hmm. you do have that option to get really, really close um, to things, which is is quite interesting. That is nice. And then the the, the last thing I want to point out, um, and... Again, listeners, you can uh, view this in the show notes. This is not a big, honking, massive camera. I mean, the size of this camera is, I would say, a, a little bit bigger than, say, like a Fuji uh, X100 um, body. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit smaller. But, but no, it's bigger than that. Um, okay, it's. It's it's more sort of like XT3 size or XT4. Okay. But it's not a big DSLR kind of honking no, camera. No, it's not. It, it it is quite heavy though. It's I believe it's about 750 grams and that's the weight of my former XT3 which I sold 
with a pretty heavy lens on it. Okay. So it is it is a heavy camera. It's a weighty camera. And part of that is the build quality. Um, you know, this is like, uh, I don't know if it's magnesium or brass or whatever. It's a heavy metal camera. That's gold. It has a gold a gold interior frame. That's what it is. <laughs> but the lens itself is very large in width, not so much in length. So there's large glass elements in the lens. Yeah. Um, so I can definitely feel the difference in weight uh, compared to other cameras. Not a problem. Not, as you say, not a big honking DSLR, you know, with the, the huge grip and all that. Yeah. Um, it is a, a subtly designed camera, but it is it is bigger than... A little bit bigger than the X-T3. Okay. But but still in the, the walking around size. Sure. Walking around size, no problem. Throw a strap onto it, go, go into town, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you'll, you'll have noticed when I picked it up, I, it's got a lens hood on it. It came with a lens hood. I've left it on for now. I don't know how much of a difference it makes. I've never been a lens hood user, but I'm thinking any kind of extra protection. Totally. <laughs> you know, even though I've got a filter on there, you know, a color filter, any extra protection to not mess up the lens is, is yeah. welcome. Well, and it's not a huge honkin' lens hood that extends twice the length of the of the lens, so it's... Well, it's, I'd say, a third of the length of the lens. It, it, okay. it, it adds another third to the length of the lens. If you look at it, you can see... Okay, it's, yeah. It's not small. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, but it's not. it's not that bad. Um, yeah. And it's one of those rectangular lens hoods, too. So it kind of looks like... It looks cool. It looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Okay, how about our snapshots? What do you got this week? All right, I have a bag. So I just recently returned from a two-week photo expedition that we can probably talk about at some, at some point. And I needed a new bag. So my everyday bag is um, a Peak Design everyday backpack. Uh, which is great for my computer and a camera and a couple of things. But I I haven't had like a really good, I'm going to go on a photo expedition kind of bag. And so the bag that I got is a Shimoda Explore V2. And this is a, a you know, big camera bag. Uh, the, the one that I got is the uh, 30 liter. So it's sort of middle. But what's nice about it is it has lots of different pockets. It's actually designed if you want to be like the type who's going to go uh, climb a mountain and, and have all your gear with you. And, uh, you know, it's it's extremely versatile. The thing that I liked about most is the way you access your lenses is actually right behind you. So you take the pack off, you set it flat down on any surface, and then you unzip a section that's normally against your back. So when you open up this panel, you then have a section that has dividers where you can put all of your lenses and and camera bodies and whatever you need, which was completely invaluable because I was in uh, the Sierra Nevada area of California. We went to a bunch of different places. And so I was frequently switching lenses. And I had rented a 100 to 400 millimeter lens for a, a really big zoom range and being able to just tromp into the bush, uh, go down by a creek, set this on the ground and just grab the lenses that I needed. It really reinforced the idea of knowing where everything you have is located and being able to grab it easily so that you're focused on shooting instead of digging around in a bag and sort of 
wasting your time doing all of that. So it's the the Explorer V2 uh, 30. Uh, it's right around $400, depending on the size. So definitely an investment. I paid a little less because I got in on the Kickstarter campaign that they had. I, I can't remember what the discount was, but there's always some sort of a, a, a discount. Uh, and it just proved to be like this durable, resilient bag that now I can take when I'm doing more extended photo stuff. It's not something that I'm going to wear and and take with me, you know, into downtown Seattle or or whatever. But <laughs> next time you climb a mountain. Next time I climb a mountain, exactly. That looks like a clever idea to get quicker access to your camera gear. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it worked out really really well. And there's there's a side access pouch if you want to do that sort of a thing. Um tons of pockets everywhere. It's what's really nice is it's a very well thought out bag. Um it, again, this is the Explorer V2 and I think uh they they've had a few different models before this and they, you know, learn from every time and uh get a lot of feedback from professional photographers. It it's just a great bag. I I really enjoyed using it and basically living out of it for a couple of weeks while driving around and taking photos all day. So, Kirk, what do you have this week? I have a book. It's quite heavy. It's called Eyes Wide Open, 100 Years of Leica Photography. Ah. Um, it's about six or 700 pages, and it's just full of history of Leica, of the development of the Leica camera, but also tons of photos by well-known photographers taken with Leica. I'm trying to hold it up for you, but it's actually too heavy for me to hold it up <laughs> um, to show you the photos. It's hundreds of photos. Some of them are small. Some of them are large. Um, it shows um, early photo magazines, and, and and what's interesting is that the Leica was the camera that made photography more accessible because it was the first really small portable camera, and so that's why you have so much news photography with Leicas instead of the you know those big cameras you see in the old movies that you have to hold with two hands, you have the big flashes on top. Yeah. Well, the Leica supplanted that, so you get a lot of news, you get a lot of war photography and and report, reportage and things. And the history of the Leica did change photography, both in terms of actual what's happening photography and artistic photography. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting to see the thread going through um, this book as the camera was developed and as it became a much more common thing. So Eyes Wide Open, 100 Years of Leica Photography, weighs a lot more than the Leica Q2. <laughs> and worth every ounce, I'm sure. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 